My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. person on earth you'd ever expect to be talking about regulations as any kind of burden. I'm an environmentalist. I've been a climate campaigner for 15 years. I mostly fight our governments who have crappy environmental laws that don't enforce them. And yet here on our island, like a lot of other desirable places to live, sometimes those environmental concerns and laws can be weaponized by people who don't want to see multifamily homes in their neighborhood, don't want to see changes. That's the voice of Jason Mogus. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Jason Mogus has been engaged with environmentalism since the 1980s, and most of his day jobs over the years have, in one way or another, been about social and environmental change. He was, for instance, a member of the coordinating group for the main campaign in Canada against the Alberta tar sands. And today, he works for an organization called the Sunrise Project, which organizes internationally to oppose fossil fuel infrastructure and fossil fuel funders. Today's episode is not, however, about Mogus's day job. Mogus lives in unceded Coast Salish territory on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. Located close to Victoria, the island has 11,000 year-round residents, a spectacular natural environment, and a reputation for being a progressive place. But it's also changed a lot in the last 20 years. While it once had space for working people, artists, and people committed to living in a range of countercultural ways, it has increasingly become an enclave for the wealthy. This gentrifying shift is a product of both the same housing crisis that exists in many regions of the country, as well as dynamics specific to Salt Spring. The island is not a municipality, but is part of a local administrative entity called the Islands Trust, which was instituted in the 1970s as part of efforts to preserve farmlands. The trust has limited powers and very little capacity for long-term planning, so while it has enabled a certain sort of conservation, it also has very limited ability to engage with community needs or to advance creative projects to meet those needs. As well, the widespread concern for the environment among the local population has been, according to today's guest, quote-unquote, weaponized in exclusionary ways by a subset of the population. Mogus, who is, remember, himself centrally involved in environmental struggles, sees a division that seems at least partly generational and partly based on class. Those people who are most able to exert power in local affairs are environmentalists who are older, whiter, and richer, and who advocate for a conservation-centric agenda that is detached from concerns about justice. At least until recently, the segment of the population that is also committed to the environment, but in a way that brings in those questions of justice, has been much less able to exert influence. In practice, this means that single-family homes for the wealthy get approved, while projects to meet community needs that do not fit that model face a much rougher ride. So, for instance, it can take more than 20 years to get a very modest, non-profit, multi-residential housing project built. So a few years ago, Mogus and a few other residents got together to found Salt Spring Solutions, a group working to build a constituency in favor of a less exclusionary vision of sustainability. 
A lot of their work has started from digital petitions about specific issues and projects. These petitions themselves exert some pressure on decision makers, but they've also allowed the group to begin drawing people together to involve them in other kinds of events and to help them advance their vision for the community through participation in various official processes. And they've had some success. They have, for example, helped a few nonprofit housing projects that had been facing obstacles to reach completion. They've also made progress towards improving cycling infrastructure, and then worked to preserve an important chunk of a local watershed that would combine conservation with making it a community amenity. On a more systemic level, though, things have been tough. A recently proposed change in planning regulations, a small and not ideal one, but one that Salt Spring Solutions viewed as a first step, has been met with intense, even vicious, backlash. This has left the group very aware of the obstacles that more substantive, transformative changes might face. But it has also left them doubly determined to continue standing up against the housing crisis and the gentrification of their community, and working to find ways to advance their vision of a Salt Spring Island that is both sustainable and just. I speak with Mogus about the work of Salt Spring Solutions, and about the lessons it might hold for the broader environmental and climate movements. My name is Jason Mogus. I live on unceded Coast Salish territory on Salt Spring Island. And our organization is called Salt Spring Solutions. We've been around for almost five years now, working to find solutions to our island's toughest challenges. I actually became kind of awakened when I was in high school. I had my own environmental awakening that culminated at Earth Day in 1988 in Toronto. And I decided at that point as a 16-year-old that I couldn't just go work for the man. I couldn't just go and help a system that was broken and corrupt get stronger. And so came out to BC and went to a not very progressive school, but I did learn politics and organizing at UBC and left after a couple of years to start a startup. And we were the first digital agency working on social change. We called ourselves new media agencies back then, working for groups like Greenpeace International built their first website and built a website for the Seattle WTO protest which was really chaotic, but also really exciting. Uh, it was the first kind of online organizing that we'd seen where we threw up a map of the Seattle WTO protest and people could figure out where to go. And there was a housing list where people could connect with housing. And you have to remember, you know, pictures were only on the internet for a few years. By that point, it was still a pretty new thing. So I had an agency that worked in social change for a long time, working for mostly grassroots groups, a lot of NGOs. But my real passion was actually networks of organizations and what happens when you combine the best of what NGOs have to offer, which is paid staff and a lot of experts and a lot of analysis and a lot of access to media with the actual creative potential of people power and edge of grassroots movements, which tend to be, you know, leaderless and have less staying power. But when these moments come along where you can combine this energy and, and analysis of NGOs with the creative capacity of grassroots, that's when you really get big change. So I've done that on things like the Copenhagen climate talks, which didn't really work, but also in Canada for five years, I worked on the Tar Sands campaign in the coordinating group. And currently I work for an organization called the Sunrise Project, which is an international organization working to build social movements to fight fossil fuel infrastructure. And in our international program where I work is where we fight the funders of fossil fuels. Where is Salt Spring Island and what's it like? We're part of the Gulf Islands chain, which includes Pender and Galliano and Hornby and Denman and Cortez and Quadra, and then a whole U.S. chain of violence. Salt Spring is the biggest and most populous. We're about 11,000 year-round residents. We're really close to Victoria. We're close-ish to Vancouver, hour and a half on a ferry, 20 minutes on a float plane. So it's a pretty connected community. It also has a farming history. 
but it's also a very progressive place, which is why I chose to move here from Vancouver nine years ago. Like most people in Vancouver, you get priced out and wonder if life is meaningful in a tiny shoebox and if there's a better way to get close to nature and still do meaningful work. So I'm really lucky to be able to do my global job from my converted garage with great internet. Unfortunately, that ability for people like me to do that has really exacerbated a long-term housing crisis on the island, which is slightly different from the housing crisis everywhere else. And that's part of why we do the work that we do. Salt Spring is pretty protected. It has a unique form of government, or some might say non-government that we'll get into later. There has long been a history of working people, farmers, creative people, artists, hippies, weirdos, but it's also very privileged and it's very white and it's rapidly becoming a enclave of the wealthy because of the housing crisis, which is the main focus of Salt Spring Solutions, our organization. How is the housing crisis playing out on Salt Spring? And in particular, how is it different than elsewhere in the country? The housing crisis on Salt Spring has a lot of similarities to the rest of Canada-ish, definitely like coastal or higher density areas in that we basically just have focused on single family homes for the last 40 years. There's been not much government investment in social housing or in non-market housing. We have real estate being financialized and used as a hedge fund tactic for Toronto, New York investors to get wealthy, as opposed to a place that you buy and raise a family in. And it's not just hedge fund people, it's, you know, lots of individuals. We have new technologies like Airbnb that have sucked up a whole bunch of homes and cottages that used to be in the rental pool for long-term renters. The unique part about Salt Spring I'll get into in a minute, which is the sort of extreme environmental rules and local community that's very, very focused on preserving and protecting the environment, which everyone here shares. But like a lot of other desirable places to live, Sometimes those environmental concerns and laws can be weaponized by people who don't want to see multifamily homes in their neighborhood, don't want to see changes. You know, that's always the same thing. We don't want to see changes to the character of our neighborhood. There's a certain you know, type of person that lives here. Not everyone can live here or should live here, which really ignores how the island has changed from a demographic perspective. I'm getting to know a friend who's a campaigner on a national organization in Canada, and he lives here now, and he grew up here. And he said, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't need an investment account to live on Salt Spring. There was all kinds of alternative people that lived outside the neoliberal order that could either make their own house off the grid outside of the system of bylaws, or they could scrape together a down payment and afford a house off of a very eclectic lifestyle that wasn't, you know, driven by capitalism. And now we're at the point because the average house price is in the high 800s that even a family of two working people that are both in reasonable jobs making reasonable money and their wages, thankfully, after the pandemic are going up a little bit. If you're in service or carpentry, there's no way they can afford a $800,000 almost teardown house on that income. The actual income you'd need in order to afford housing here is far beyond what a typical working person or even middle class person can afford unless they have family help. And what are those additionally challenging environmental regulations that are specific to Salt Spring? I'm the last person on earth you'd ever expect to be talking about regulations as any kind of burden. I'm an environmentalist. I've been a climate campaigner for 15 years. I mostly fight our governments who have crappy environmental laws that don't enforce them. And yet here on our island, it's a bit of an odd thing. In the 70s, the NDP left-leaning government was really concerned about farmlands disappearing, as they should be in BC, and the islands were really concerned. The American versions of these islands have some Walmarts and some shopping malls on them, totally inappropriate for this incredible ecosystem. 
So they protected it with a governance system called the Islands Trust, which is a preserve and protect mandate, protecting the environment of the Gulf Islands, protecting the unique community that's here, as well as supporting some kind of alternative economy and families and, you know, all the creative craft and farming and creative small businesses. The challenge with the Islands Trust is that it doesn't have any capacity for long-term planning. It doesn't have any transportation authority. It's not a mayor and council. We're not for that being different as far as having us be a municipality like everywhere else. There's been a couple of referendums in the last 20 years, and they've both resoundingly ended on the no side that we didn't want to turn into a Whistler or a Tofino or a Nanaimo is always the concern. But the flip side of that is there's no real democratic system. The services are split up between an off-island bureaucracy, which is really focused on Victoria and is looking at managing all the fast-growing suburbs of Victoria. And that's where most of our tax dollars go. And then the Islands Trust itself has very few powers to do anything besides approve mansions. I mean, I'm I'm being a bit facetious. They do lots of really important things. But the problem on Salt Spring is we have this never-ending pressure right now in 2022 for single-family homes that tend to be, you know, dream homes that are on forested land where somebody buys the lot. They might subdivide it down to 10 acres or five acres, and they build a big home on it and clear the area for gardens and water the heck out of their gardens, which is totally fine and, you know, the Canadian dream. But the fact is the island is gentrified so quickly. We're approving all of these large-scale homes, and yet we're not approving any multifamily homes or very few. It takes sometimes 25 years for a nonprofit housing project to come through, given the island's trust limitations, community opposition that we face. How did all of this result in Salt Spring Solutions coming together? The housing crisis made it, to me, take shape because of my co-founder, Elizabeth Fitzalan, is a planner and a creative genius who moved with her family here, like many of us, because of the amazing nature and other benefits of the island and found that it was really difficult to do creative things here. And in fact, one of the people that she worked with had said, oh, you really don't want to work on Salt Spring. That place never gets anything done as far as the kind of innovative planning projects that make community builders excited to do things. So for me, I noticed the housing crisis show up because I saw the struggles she was facing trying to get this project that had been on the books for 18 years at the time or 19 years through the final hoops that it could actually get built with about 20 units of nonprofit housing. There was another project that a group called Women Against Violence had been trying to get organized and it was facing community opposition. And there was another project that was facing water limitations and community opposition. And I saw a real opportunity in my day job for, you know, storytelling about social movements and about the climate crisis and a big part about how you build momentum for a campaign is you have to reframe a story. And that's what was really missing here on Salt Spring. So we started to try to reframe what the housing crisis was. It wasn't about how tall a building was or how much water those units might use. It was actually about a crisis of nurses and teachers and farm workers who couldn't live here and who were leaving the island or who were spending 60, 70% of their income on moldy housing that was inappropriate and unsafe and how desperately this island needs a working and middle class, that they're a huge part of the community fabric, as well as the history, as well as it's their moral right to live here like anyone's is. And they were being forced to leave because we couldn't actually build any housing. Housing developers were getting all kinds of blockages along the way, very little information. It seemed like they were doing the wrong thing and that all the burden of getting these things done was being put on these nonprofit housing developers. So we came in to build public support. Every time there's a public meeting in a place like Salt Spring for something like a baseball field that the kids need or a soccer field or a nonprofit housing project, there's always 50, 100 people that show up and are saying, no, this is going to change my neighborhood. It's going to bring noise. It's going to bring, and these are legitimate concerns, but because Salt Spring skews older and retired and wealthier and white, 
those tend to be the people that have the time to engage in these dry municipal processes who are tracking the minutiae of a civic government and are engaging themselves in that process and are showing up and organizing for these meetings. So we said, there's a lot of people here that aren't showing up at these meetings that need housing, but they don't know this project is available. You know, they don't live on the street, so they didn't get a notice on their door. So we wanted to build a constituency that could show up for what the community does want and to try to bring more of a harmony and democratic voice to the community. That's when things got difficult, though, because we found that it wasn't just public will that was needed in order to shift things. Our government here is fairly dysfunctional and completely under capacity. There's actually a ton of policy analysis and coordination work that we have to do as volunteers on this island in order to get anything done because the governments either have underlapping responsibilities, they pass the buck around, takes a year to even get a meeting coordinated, and there's not enough capacity for them to take leadership, nor is there budget or specialized staff like engineers or long-range planners that can actually take these projects and really run with them. So we found that it wasn't just the kind of people-powered work, which is my favorite thing. We actually had to do a lot of Elizabeth's thing, which is actually planning and policy and research for free for the community in order to actually have any kind of momentum for things getting done. So we have petitions that we've run on different community issues that were important, like the housing crisis. We've run one on trying to fix our main roads to make it safe for cycling. That one's been very successful. And then we work to let those people know about opportunities for them to participate in democratic processes like town halls, or if the Minister of Transportation needs to hear from Salt Springers to prioritize this project, we've been waiting for better roads for 20 years now, then we're part of the crew that can help mobilize people to write letters and let people know what the timing is. And then the thing that we haven't been good at, because it's hard to do everything well on volunteer time with, you know, all of us that are involved have families or care responsibilities, is actually like engaging people. Salt Spring is a place, I hope, like a lot of small communities that really runs on a lot of volunteer energy. So we collaborate with a lot of other local groups that are here, and we try to find passionate people that want to help out and find roles for them so that they can contribute to the change we're looking for. And has the work so far mostly been on a project-by-project basis, or has there been some scope to make more systemic interventions and, you know, get some rules and processes and so on changed? It has been very project-focused for the first few years, and I'd say we successfully helped those projects come to fruition. We now have maybe 100 or so units that have come online in the last four years or so, and I know a number of families that live there. So some of these projects actually came to fruition, and that's really rewarding, but a lot of nonprofit developers won't bother with a project on Salt Spring if it takes 10 years of their life and an extra million dollars of planning and government relations time in order to go through all the hoops required. And so we have been trying to look at structural issues and trying to advocate for levels of government to take this crisis more seriously. And that's where we've hit a wall. We're in a real sad moment in our community right now where the Islands Trust, they convened a group. Their intention was a group of citizens and businesses that are directly affected by the housing crisis. And they got together for a year and a half and they were supported by staff of the government to talk about what the issues were and what solutions were available to them. And the thing that the government decided to change structurally was accessory dwelling unit bylaw basically small cottages and suites and legalizing them and allowing people of certain lot sizes to be able to build an accessory dwelling unit, which means, you know, a mother-in-law suite or a cottage. And I've never quite seen such a backlash from the, I, I can't describe it as anything else, but the environmental community of which I'm part of, but I'm certainly not aligned with them here that are saying this is going to destroy the island. It's going to double our population. It's going to destroy our carrying capacity. It's going to destroy our official community plan. And yet this 
particular bylaw. None of us were particularly excited about it. You know, it's cost about 200 grand or more to build a cottage these days. If you could even find a contractor, most of the homes in Salt Spring are owned by very wealthy people that unless they're really philanthropic, they don't need a mortgage helper suite. They're not going to go through the trouble or want a hassle of having a renter on their property. And in fact, BC's own stats show that once these accessory dwelling units are allowed, they've seen the pattern of maybe 10% build out over time. The opponents of this bylaw here say it's not 10%, it'll be 100%. Every lot will build a suite. It'll raise housing prices even more. People will just Airbnb them. And it's been really divisive in the community. I've been attacked personally, and the politician who ran on a mandate of balancing housing with the environment is being attacked. There's a lawsuit against her. It's really sad because the community is in a real crisis. Everyone here cares about the environment. There were lots of environmental protections built into this bylaw. And like I said, it's not even something the affordable housing community was that excited about. It's one of many solutions, but we kind of scratch our heads and say, if something like this can't even go through, you know, how are we going to get to some of the more transformative solutions that are possible? We thought we were making some momentum. We've been doing storytelling for years about all the people that are leaving the island and the fact that we're not trying to build homeless shelters so that all the homeless people from Victoria and Vancouver come here. But that's what we're accused of every time we talk about affordable housing, that will just open the floodgates and the island will be overrun by people that will destroy the environment. The tone is very off-putting and just shows a real class blindness when it's actually environmentally minded, wealthy people flying all over the world on their three holidays a year and with their new cars that are electric, maybe, but every three years that are having the biggest impact on the climate crisis, not craftspeople and working people and people living off the grid or outside of the economic system. Are there any lessons that you derive from this challenge, this cleavage among environmentally conscious people on Salt Spring that might be relevant to the broader climate movement that you're also a part of? I've been an environmentalist for 30 years, but I've only been an activist really for about 10. Like, There's a beautiful thing happening to the environment and climate movement that not everybody always experiences as beautiful, but it's an awareness of the interconnections of these issues of race and class and housing and inequality. And the climate movement has done a really admirable job. It has a long way to go, but the needle is moving towards diversifying what the climate movement looks like, the kind of people that are paid to work in the climate movement, which then makes you change your perspective and the kind of issues you work on and the way you work with frontline communities and those directly affected by the crisis. And so to me, what's a challenge in a place like where I live right now is that we have a lot of environmentalists or conservationists here that haven't gone through that transformation towards climate justice which is centering the needs of the people most impacted by the climate crisis and the people most marginalized by the economic system that we've all benefited from in your solutions. And as a white male, been doing this work for a while, there's no way I could be working in the climate movement the way I do. I'm building social movements in many cities right now in New York and San Francisco and Toronto and Montreal and even Vancouver and Victoria. There's no way I could be doing this work if I hadn't done my own work around power and privilege and centering climate justice. I've got a lot to learn still and I'm by no means at the end of any kind of journey, but it feels like there's kind of a generational issue where we are here that the environment is seen as the only issue. And if you say, no, what about inequality? They say, that's nice, dear, but the environment is in crisis and we can't deal with that here. We have to focus on the environment. And that kind of thinking is just not acceptable anymore in the broader world. This is the era of interconnected issues of wicked problems. It's sadly an era of ongoing rolling crises that all have similar causes, but very different effects. As we saw with COVID, the effects were much worse if you worked at a frontline job or if you were an immigrant or racialized communities than office people who could just Zoom from home whose lives didn't really change all that much. And so we have to really connect these dots between race, class, gender, and ultimately capitalism if we're going to actually transform society. 
And yet here we are on Salt Spring fighting for the most basic, like housing as a human right of really good people that want to stay here. And we're being defeated by a hardcore environmentalism. So, you know, that needs to evolve. And unfortunately, it takes time and lots of people pitching in and putting their shoulders to the wheel and using their voice. Focusing back on Salt Spring solutions, despite this setback in terms of more systemic change on these issues, are there other specific projects that you are still working on moving forward? We're generally quite hopeful about what's going on here. We don't just work on affordable housing. We work on safe cycling and trying to get painted bike lanes on our main roads. We finally got the attention of the Ministry of Transportation, who are doing a study finally, because again, we have no engineering department. So we've had some progress on getting safe cycling. We're working right now on a fundraising campaign to save, I think it's 80 acres of Mount Maxwell, which is one of our main watersheds in the community. And it's the biggest community land saving in a generation. But we want to not just lock it into have it be a park where you're not allowed to hike there anymore. It's an area that's used by horseback riders and mountain bikers and hikers and frisbee golf people. And we want to have a community amenity for the island that is protected nature, that isn't just private and becomes someone's home, but there's actually like a, a community amenity. So we're working on that. We call ourselves Salt Spring Solutions. We're orienting ourselves towards finding solutions. We were really excited about a lab that the government of Canada was funding around, in our case, is water. We do have a water crisis on Salt Spring. There's limited lakes where a lot of the population gets the water from, and we've got worse droughts in the last 10 years. They're going to get worse. There's a lot of climate impacts that we're having to prepare for as a community, fire and, and water. But this water lab, we were going to be bringing together the Waterworks District at the levels of local government as well as other community groups for a solutions conversation around water. We didn't get that funding, but we hope to again. So, you know, we're pretty pragmatic, but the bigger picture for us is to make sure that the community hears from multiple sides because right now there's a real concentration of political power in one demographic that tends to successfully block a lot of change people that are serving you coffee or bagging your groceries or fixing your pipes when they explode in the winter, they deserve to live here too. So ultimately, we would like to build a constituency and work with others that believe a community can have deep sustainability roots and can do really, really innovative sustainability, water protection measures, forest protection measures, have this be a place where racialized communities feel safe and welcome, and where we have some diversity in our community still from an income perspective as well. There needs to be constituencies that are fighting back against this endless neoliberal development surge in cities and in communities for sustainable, affordable housing that's ecologically friendly, but that actually is realistic for people that aren't millionaires to be able to buy. And so I think there should be a group like this in every town that's focused on getting to yes, what does this community want? What is the real issues at play? What are the real barriers to us getting what we want? How can we organize ourselves to get what we want? Here we are, 40 years later, neoliberalism has largely failed to do anything other than make the people at the top wealthy in a class that serves their needs pretty stable and wealthy. But look at the environmental catastrophe we're living in, and we haven't dealt with reconciliation at all. We haven't dealt with criminalization of racialized people, and inequality is worse than it's ever been. So communities need to work together to get what we want. But I also don't think that we should be content to have the scraps. We pay all these taxes that are being spent by governments that are mostly being captured by industry, whether that's developers or big corporations. We need those resources. We've got a series of crises that we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our lives and our kids' lives. So I hope a group like ours is a piece of the puzzle. There's many others that are working collectively on this. You have been listening to my interview with Jason Mogus about Salt Spring Solutions. To learn more about the group, go to saltspringsolutions.com. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.